Right, did everyone go home last week and read chapter four and decide which was worse? Chapter three or chapter four? Uh, chapter four isn't actually as bad as it looks at first reading, but, um, you know, well, uh, pardon? Well, yeah, that's, that's right, there's some heavy stuff in there, but uh, anyway, we're going to, you know, sort of see it, see it tonight. But before we actually move on to the actual fourth chapter, when doing like sort of letters, well, any book in the Bible, but it's a bit easier with letters, um, it's always good to try and get the pattern of the book, you know, to understand the way in which it's written. I mean, it's like when people write, be it books or letters, they've got literary devices that they use, their, their technique for writing. And uh, what I just want to do is to just draw your attention uh, when I tell you about it, you'll realise, oh yes, that's right, but you probably haven't clicked yet. That the literary device that James uses is that he kind of, he, he's basically saying that, that there are two kinds of everything. And he's all the time drawing the contrast between the true and the false. And in effect, in his letter, He's coming up with a list of various aspects of the Christian life. And what he's saying is there's two kinds of everything. There's the true and there's the false. There's the genuine and there's the counterfeit. There's the godly and there's the demonic. It's a great book of contrast. There's the spiritual and there's the fleshly or the carnal, to use the language of Paul. There's the new nature, and there's the old sinful nature. And all the time, what James is doing, he's looking, in effect, at different aspects of the Christian life. And he's saying, in any aspect of the Christian life, I mean, he draws various ones as examples, but in every aspect of the Christian life, it can be the true or the false. It can be the new nature or the old nature. It can be the genuine or the counterfeit. For instance, do you remember in chapter 1, we saw that he drew there the contrast between true testing and false testing. Do you remember, we saw that there's a, a, certainly a way in which the Lord tests us, that the Lord leads us into various situations, and the difficulties that arise through following the Lord obviously bring all manner of temptations and difficulties, and obviously our sin is drawn out and what we find is that the deeper we go with the Lord he's kind of leading us into various circumstances very often not easy ones and our true nature comes out because after all you only find out the real truth about yourself not when everything's going well but when everything's going badly as it were and there we saw true testing God leading us through difficulties and as a result of that, we, we see our sin being revealed and, and sort of like, you know, the picture being of the, the gold which is contaminated going into the, you know, the crucible, like the boiler, and, and the heat is, is, is kind of, you know, sort of shoved up and it gets really hot and then the gold melts and all the muck comes to the surface and it can be skimmed off. And so the gold is a bit purer. And uh, sort of like when we looked at that, you know, we saw that sort of like there's, there's gold in them thar hills. Uh, and of course there's holiness in them thar Christians, because Jesus lives in us. But he's the gold, but there's so much dross. And so the difficulties bubble the dross to the surface. And then if we're willing to admit it, 
if we're willing to look at the dross and say, oh yes, that's a bit of dross, rather than to fight and kick, then it can be skimmed off. So there's genuine testing. But we saw as well, didn't we, in chapter one, that there's a false testing. And we saw that in effect that was when our own stupidity leads us not into God's will, but out of God's will. And then all the difficulties and the temptation and all the falling into sin that happens as a result of being out of God's will, we say, oh, it's a law testing me. And we kind of use getting out of God's will, you know, we excuse it by saying it's God testing. I think the example that I gave was, um, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, if you're single and the Lord brings someone along who might be your partner for life and, you know, you, you strike up a relationship that is not platonic, uh, that's great, but there are going to be temptations there that, that have to be fought. And that's genuine testing. That's no problem at all. You know, you, you can't go into that kind of relationship without being faced with the real temptation of being immoral. Obviously, you must resist it, but that is true testing. But what we saw, didn't we, is that if you're sort of like, you know, lying on the sofa with, with, with your intended, you know, sort of like the lights are out, you're completely on your own, you know, the shirt's gone and the vest is due next, well, then that, that, that is such stupidity that you can't then, when you've fallen into sin and fornicated, say, oh goodness, it was the Lord testing us and I failed. Almost as if, you know, the fact that the fact it was the law testing minimises the fact that one failed and fell into sin. Because, of course, the law doesn't lead people into situations like that. So the point is, we can look back over our lives and we can see uh, failure and sin that has been the result of us following us where the Lord is leading. But then there's this other category, isn't it? Which is precisely that sin that happened because we went our own way. And, and, and there's no excusing it. It's sin that wouldn't have happened if we kept to God's will. You see? So there's the true and the false. Um, I mean, it's like another example might be, um, you know, sort of like, uh, let's say, um, you know, you've got, you've got resentment against somebody, all right, or something like that. Um, you know, and you, you sort of go around saying, oh, well, you know, it's the, you know, it's the Lord sorting me out. It's the Lord dealing with me. Almost as if saying, oh, it's the Lord dealing with me, buys you time for hanging on to that sin. You see what I mean? And it becomes a massive excuse. I mean, the point is, for instance, if you've got resentment in your heart against somebody, there is nothing to talk about. I mean, yeah, you can get loads of mileage. Oh, God's dealing with me and, and God's testing me, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and it's all a massive cover-up for not repenting. For instance, if I've got resentment in my heart against somebody, there's no talking to do. There's repenting to do, and that's slightly different. But can you see, you can kind of like s cover it with the veneer of it, God testing us and, and dealing with us, almost to buy yourself time to stay in the sin a bit longer. It's got like a variation on, you know, like the devil made me do it. I mean, I mean that's, you know, all, all these excuses that we've got. Sin is inexcusable, and we must never seek to excuse it. Uh, you know, sort of like what we must do is bring it to the Lord so he can forgive it. So the point is that, that there in chapter 1 we saw that there is a true testing as a Christian, but there's the carnal counterfeit. There's the demonic counterfeit. There's the, the old sinful nature version of it. You know, so there you've got the true and the false. Um, in chapter 2 we, we saw two kinds of faith 
of sanctifying faith. Remember, we've been seeing that James isn't concerning himself you know, with getting people converted. He's writing to Christians. He's not dealing with justification. When he's talking about faith, he's not talking about you know, coming to the Lord and being justified by faith. He's dealing with sanctification. He's dealing with now faith. He's dealing with, are you following the Lord now? Are you being faithful now? Are you trusting the Lord now? So it's sanctification, not justification, not, not freedom from the penalty of sin, but James is purely dealing with freedom from the power of sin. And so in regards to faith, because of course sanctification is by faith, the same as justification is, it's a free gift that we receive by faith. But remember, James in chapter 2 went, said that there are two kinds of this faith. There's the genuine and there's the counterfeit. There's the true and there's the false. For instance, we saw that he outlines that one kind of faith that Christians can go around you know, having um, is, is kind of the faith that believes and talks. And, and James says that actually is no good at all. And then he says the genuine article is the faith that believes and then does. You see, that's the difference. He's saying the faith that just ends with talking, or the faith talk, as opposed to, you know, getting down there in the mire with people and serving, all right? He says that's, that's, that's the wrong sort. That's the false faith. True faith is serving. It's active obedience to the commandments of God, rather than just talking and not doing it. So, there we see the genuine and the counterfeit sanctifying faith. Um, in chapter 3, last time, we saw two kinds of wisdom, didn't we? We saw James talking about the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from below. And, you know, he was outlining that the wisdom that comes from below, you know, we were seeing things like it's, it's, it's argumentative and it's this, that and the other. Whereas the, the wisdom that comes from above, we saw it was peaceable, it was pure, blah, blah, blah. So there he's outlining wisdom, of course, being the application of knowledge, wisdom being how you actually live. And uh, again, you can have all the knowledge, you can have all the Bible knowledge. You really can. But what you really know, your true understanding, is going to be measured not by what you say you understand, it's going to be measured by how you actually live, how that knowledge is put into action. Wisdom, if you like, being the application of knowledge. And so there we saw two kinds of wisdom. So can you see this, that, that this is the technique, if you like, that James is using in writing. He's saying that for every aspect of the Christian life, there is the genuine and the false, all right? And uh, what we're going to do later on in chapter 4, now, we've got a couple of studies before we get to it, all right? But, but in a couple of studies' time, when we get to the end of chapter 4, we'll see that he deals with the question that there are two kinds of confidence in the Lord. There's a true and a false. Oh, we'll see that when we get there. But can you see the point? What James is saying, the burden of the letter, is he's saying, look, the sinful nature, the very thing that Jesus, I mean, Jesus came to save us from our sins, so we go to heaven, we're justified, and then he came to save us from the power of our sinful nature, to sanctify us, to make us holy, all right? Now, the point is, this sinful nature the very thing that Jesus wants to deliver us from so that we can, you know, realise that, 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 that we died on the cross with him. 
this, this very sinful nature that the Bible says crucify it, don't, don't give in to it, that this very sinful nature is perfectly capable of doing a very, very Christian and religious, I'm a disciple of Jesus thing. I mean, you know, the sinful nature is really good at pretending to be following the Lord. It's, it's the nature of the sinful nature. And what James is doing, he's writing to Christians who are, now, he's not writing to a particular church, he's writing to Jewish Christians in general. But he's doing so knowing that there were a lot of Jewish Christians out there who were getting very, very out of order. And we're going to see tonight just what some of them were up to. And what James is doing is he is exposing this quite mercilessly. He is exposing the fact that the sinful nature can do a big Christian religious thing. So that carnal Christians can parade as being spiritual Christians. See, and he's saying this is absolutely no good at all. And he is explaining how you can test it in any one instance. I mean, how can you tell, you know, like whether it's your life in general or particular aspects of life, obviously ourselves first and then others, you know, because we need to know where other people stand. And, and, and in actual fact, next time we'll be coming on to the whole question about judging each other, you know, so, so it'll be quite interesting to see that. Uh, you know, but the point is we must start judging ourselves, but we need to know where other Christians stand. Because if, you know, I mean, if, you know, if I'm going to say, right, okay, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really close to you, then I need to know that if, you know, if you and I are going to walk together, are we agreed? And you need to know that about me. So, you know, you've got to, you know, sort of like say, well, you know, how do we know whether Beresford or Andy or Robert or Belinda or whatever, how do we know whether they're, they're genuine or whether they, you know, it's just carnal Christianity prating as the real thing? And what James is saying, this is how you test it. This is how you find out. And it is always, every time, by the fruit of our lives. It is always by the fruit of our lives. It is never merely what we say. And in fact, James is saying that, that, that nowhere do you see the giveaway more clearly, in fact, than in an individual Christian's talk life. What are they doing with the tongue? And, you know, we've been seeing that James' concern was twofold. I mean, it, it was directly using the tongue for bad things, okay? But his other concern is that with our tongue, we can completely misrepresent ourselves because we can do discipleship talk even though maybe we're not actually following the Lord in discipleship. And that is the big problem with the tongue. So he says that's where you look, the fruit of people's lives, and I have a good old listen to what their tongue's up to. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of, you know, will give you an idea of where people are. Now, last time we, we ended uh, chapter 3, and you'll remember I said that it, it, it sort of, um, the fact that chapter 3 ends where it does could, could kind of, make you think, you know, that okay, there's the end almost of a paragraph and a subject and it starts anew. But in actual fact, the verses we're going on to tonight are very much a continuation. And um, we saw last time at the end of chapter 3 that, you know, that James was, was talking about how one of the, the aspects or, or one of the things about the truly 
spiritual person, i.e. someone who is substantially growing in the Lord and growing in the new nature, um, is, is that you're going to see that person being a person of peace and a peacemaker. Now, in talking about being a person of peace and peacemaker, we saw that it wasn't a question of, you know, kind of compromise or anything like that, you know, just trying to keep, you know, sort of like peace at any cost, because we saw that peace isn't kept, it's made, it's active, you see. But the point is, the person who's growing in the Lord is someone who has no personal axes to grind, be it with the Lord or anybody else. And that's ultimately what being at peace is all about, i.e. you haven't got any fights on with people. Other people might have a fight on with you, but that's entirely different, that's, that's nothing to do with you. But the point is you haven't got any fight on with anyone else, be it the Lord or other people. The fight you've got on your hands is with Satan and the evil spirits. That's where the fight is, but not flesh and blood in any way at all. And uh, so there we saw last time, the end of chapter 3, um, you know, sort of James talking about that, that someone growing in the Lord is going to be showing that characteristic. They're going to be someone of peace. They're going to be someone, uh, they're not going to be like the porcupine. You know, it's sort of like you, you get too close and suddenly all their barbs shoot out. Uh, or everything can be going nicely and then suddenly you realise, hey, they've just blown my head off. Can you see what I mean? To be growing in the Lord is to have anything of that, antagonism, rancour, as the Bible would call it, as a good old English word, rancour. There won't, you know, it's, it's vanishing, it's, you're dying to it all the time, <coughs> and, and you're holding out to people all the time peace, and, and not in, in fights with people. Now then, bearing that in mind, now we'll move on to chapter 4. James has reiterated, one of the things about being a truly spiritual Christian is that you're going to be a man or a woman of peace. Right. Let's move on now. Let's read chapter 4, and you'll see the connection. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? Now, can you see James outlining what it is to be growing in the Lord, and now he's describing something that he knew full well to be the case, in at least a good number of, of the Jews in general who've become Christians. Obviously, it must have affected a fair number of them, or why bother to write a letter about it, all right? And basically, what he's saying, but the great problem is, is that you lot, your very characteristic is warlike. I mean, not necessarily in the sense of, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of wars in the sense of, you know, sort of like Germany invading Poland or anything like that, but the point is, you know, individuals can go to war as well as nations. And the truth of the matter is that many, many nations have ended up going to war simply because their individual leaders decided to be at war with other individual leaders. Can you see the point? And so here, James is talking about wars, fightings, and passions. And he's writing to Christians who are absolutely at war with other Christians. He is addressing a situation of strife, of infighting, of personal vendettas in the extreme. That is one of the problems that he's addressing, and it is amongst Christians. 
And that's the terrible thing about it. And he gives the reason for it. He says, look, understand where this comes from. And he says, it's, it's, it's passions, all right, that are at war in your members. Now, this word member, all right, we saw it last time in regards to the tongue, the tongue being a little member. It's the word melos. It means the, a part of the body, you know, like, like my, my arm is a melos, all right, that's the, the, Greek, the Greek word for a part of a body. Um, you know, the same as the tongue. The tongue is a tiny member. And this word passions, the Greek word there, because there are different Greek words for passions, all right, you know, because, you know, we talk about when Jesus died, we talk about that being the passion of Christ. Uh, you know, that comes from an entirely different Greek word than this one here. But the one here virtually means the opposite, and it means pleasures, it's hedone. And that is the Greek word from which we get our English word hedonism, or a hedonist. And hedonism is the belief that the pursuit of personal pleasure is the highest good. Now that's what hedonism is. Hedonism is the belief that what matters most in life is getting as much personal pleasure as you can. And, you know, we say that a hedonist is someone who just wants the good life. Don't worry about anything else, but I just want the good life. You know, like, like girls just want to have fun. And, and sometimes, well, often blokes just want to have fun as well, usually with the girls who want to have fun. You know, and, and, and it's, it's pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And it's all that matters. And the thing about hedonism, we're not here saying that pleasure is in itself wrong, but this is the putting of pleasure above everything. And so, therefore, James saying this, so how is strife, where does strife come from? Well, ultimately it comes when individuals are so demanding of their pleasure, whatever that might be, um, you know, but, but, but so obsessed with what pleases that individual that they will do anything in order to get it. Now then, the actual pleasure that they're prepared to fight for could be anything. I mean, it, it, it might be a sensual pleasure. It might be someone who enjoys getting drunk. So they keep getting drunk, and their brothers and sisters are saying, well, no, you know, this is wrong. It, it must stop. There are perhaps, one has to perhaps view it slightly different for someone who is an alcoholic. Now, obviously, they've still got to stop being drunk but a situation like that requires an awful lot of love and support. I'm just talking about the bloke who every Friday night keeps going out and gets drunk. He did it when he was a Christian, and even when he, he wasn't a Christian, but even though he's a Christian, he's going to keep doing it, all right? And so his brothers and sisters, they say, well, look, no, you know, this, this ought to stop. You know, and show him in the Bible that it's wrong and that the Lord hates it. But nevertheless, that means so much to him, he's prepared to go to war against the whole church. You see, he's at war with the Lord, and he's at war with his brothers and sisters, because he wants his pleasure with somebody else. It might be being immoral. I don't know. It, you know so it might be essential pleasure. Uh, it might be something like wanting to be the big cheese. Now, that's what turns some people on. They want to be, you know, sort of big boss. Um, I remember one bloke uh, who used to come here, and I underline the used to come here, because it's probably just as well he doesn't anymore, but his, his, his favourite saying 
was the trouble around here is that there's, hang on, let me get this right. Yeah, there's too many Indians and not enough chiefs, see. And, and, and that was, and he saw himself as, as the chief. And, and, and all, all the time he, he was trying to arrange things, you know, virtually to, you know, sort of get little groups to support him because he wanted to be a big cheese. And so that, that's your pleasure. And the point is you'll pursue it. It, it becomes more important than anything else. Um, it might just be desiring to get away with something you know has done wrong, you know, that you've done wrong. And the idea of putting it right is not a pleasurable thing. And so because you like pleasure rather than unpleasure, if you like, you think, well, no, I'm not going to put it right. It's too hard. I'm not going to. But can you see, it's the point that when an individual wants their pleasure, wants their way more than anything else. Now, all you need is a few people, well, two is enough, actually, but a few people in the church who are like this. And they've all got different wants and desires. And nothing is going to stop them. But the great problem is they often end up standing in each other's way. Because what happens if you get two people who want to be the big cheese? See? Well, not only have they got to be at war with each other, because they don't want to, you know, they, you know, these people want to be big cheese. They think leadership is big power thing. They don't understand the first thing about leadership in the church. They think it's big power thing, like, you know, big boss. And, and so not only have they got to be at war with each other, because you've got to scupper your competitor, but they've got to go around and you've got to get support. So, so one bloke wants to be the big cheese, he's trying to get support from one group of Christians, but the other who wants to be a big cheese, he's trying to get other Christians to back him. And they're gaily splitting a church. You see, this is what James is talking about. I.e., he's saying, look, all these wars, all this strife, all this infighting, the reason it keeps happening is because you want your own way at any cost. And that, for the Christian, is death. It's absolute spiritual death. It is the exact opposite from the reality of the Christian life, which is submit yourselves, therefore, one to another. That's the Christian life. Rather give in and not get your way, if that blesses someone else. But these people, what do they want to do? I don't bet anyone else, I want my way. And they'll fight and they'll go to all kinds of extremes, okay? So, therefore, this is what James is saying. That's the problem. All this division, blah, blah, blah. It's because you want your own way at any cost. Regardless of whether what you want is itself good or bad, all right? Because, I mean, I, I, I mean, someone wanting to get drunk, someone wanting to have the big cheese or be immoral, that's all bad. But you might, for instance, get someone else who they want to get married. Now, nothing wrong with that. They want to get married. But the Lord hasn't brought anyone along yet. But they want to get married. But, but the Lord hasn't brought anyone... But they want to get married. And, and they're not going to let anyone in the church forget that they want to get married. You see, and they become obsessed with it, and it's all they talk about, and you know, that then it's moan, groan, you see, it could be anything, it could be a genuine desire, but it's when the desire, be it something right or wrong, legitimate or sinful, the point is, it's when you want something so much that it overrides everything else, and then you're prepared to fight for it, 
or even if you don't see any opportunity to fight for it, at least you can go around sulking because you're not getting it. But either way, you see, this is where division, strife, arguments, infighting all comes from. Right, let's read verses 2 and 3. And uh, you desire and do not have. Because that's the problem. They're not getting what they want. You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now then, here, this word kill, I mean, can you see, he's dealing with the fact that they're not getting what they want. So, they're fighting harder and harder and harder for it. Now here, it talks about, so you kill. Now, this, this Greek word here is the specific Greek word for murder. Now, some Bible commentators would say of this verse that it's kind of like James is using this phrase allegorically. Because obviously if you release this kind of poison, because last time we saw about the tongue being a restless evil, full of poison, didn't we? And they say, you know, obviously if you release this, this kind of poison into the fellowship, it can kill people spiritually. Well, yes, in, indeed it can. I'm happy with that interpretation. But for myself, I don't see how one can get away with simply saying, well, however true that might be allegorically, nevertheless, this is literal. This is literal. Because, you know, if James was just speaking allegorically, he could have used other ways of doing it. And the point is, he knew that Christians had even murdered each other. Strife had got so bad that there had been murder. People were doing each other in. Now, the point is, this is all a bit gobsmacking for us. But, the point is, in that culture, you see, and these weren't just the Jews in Jerusalem, in fact these were Jews, as we saw in an earlier study, they were dispersed all over, all over like, you know, the then known world. And uh, it wasn't that difficult necessarily. You, you had a far greater chance of dispatching someone you didn't like then than you have now. You know, we're a more inverted commas civilised society. So it was easier to get away with it, and indeed they were. And, I mean, I've often thought that, say you had a situation, I mean, say that, 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 that law completely broke down in this country. Say you had something rather like former Yugoslavia, where law broke down, anarchy, you know, sort of like broke out, and people who a few weeks earlier were having barbecues together in the same street were killing each other. All right. Now, in a situation like that, Ordinary people seem to be able to come up with the ability to kill a murder. And none of us ought to say, oh yes, but of course if that happened in this country, we wouldn't do it in Britain, because I think we jolly well would. We, we just don't get the opportunity. Thank God, the, the, law, the, the law and order is sufficiently in place, as God wants it to be, to prevent anarchy breaking out. But if, if anarchy broke out in this country, and say law and order broke down completely, um, then, then I, 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 I would certainly say that I have seen Christians in situations where 
Had what happened between them happened in a lawless society and there'd have been nothing, you know, no police to arrest you, I wouldn't have put murder beyond one or two Christians that, that I've seen having a go at each other. You see, ultimately it's only the fear of getting caught in that moment of intense passion that prevents you. And of course that, that's what the law is there for. But of course the thing is that here, James is literally talking about, you know, look, you are going so far. I know that there has actually been killing amongst you. And, uh, you know, this is absolutely unbelievable. And, and, and he says, you covet and you cannot um, uh, obtain. And, and this word, covet, zeluo, it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians when he talks about earnestly desire the spiritual gift. And it's, you know, the actual word itself is morally neutral because you could be desiring a good thing and that isn't coming between you and God. But the point is here, it's wanting something so badly that you don't get it and therefore all hell breaks loose. What you're wanting is neither here nor there, but it's the fact of wanting something so badly that all hell breaks loose. And, and, and he then turns to prayer. Because, of course, the point is that what we want but we don't have, all right, well, we're told to make our supplications to God. If there's something you want and you don't have it, ask the Lord. And so he turns to prayer. And um, firstly, he says you ask and do not, uh, sorry, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And, and he's saying, firstly, look, there's one aspect why you're not getting what you want. Now, obviously here he's talking about you know, things that are okay. I mean, you couldn't say, you know, oh Lord, you know, sort of enable me to go and get drunk. I mean, God wouldn't answer prayer like that. But he's saying, look, firstly, you're not getting because you're not asking. You're not even praying for it. So how can you expect this blessing, whatever it is, how can you, you know, be thinking, oh, it's not fair. God isn't giving me, you know, sulk, 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 you know. Um, when, when you're not even praying for it. So, you know, so that's the first thing. And, you know, sort of, I think that, that can be true. Maybe it's the fear that, well, if I do actually pray for it, God might say no. And remember that anything we're praying for, God does have the right to say no. So, you know, maybe some Christians, they, they, you know, they're not asking and they don't receive. But the reason they're not asking um, is, is perhaps because they're, they're, they're frightened that the Lord would actually say no. But secondly, he, he goes on to say um, that... Um, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So secondly, he says, some of them are praying, but they're being turned down by the Lord because they're praying for entirely all the wrong reasons. He says, merely to spend on your passions, i.e. all for your personal pleasure and not the service of God or others. Now then, the point is, as soon as individuals put what they want above the corporate good and are prepared to fight for it, there you have quarrels, strife and contention. Now, it's important to understand that there might well be certain things that we pray for. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, when I was single, I prayed for a wife for many years. Now, the point was, obviously, primarily, that was for my pleasure. Obviously, that was for me. We're not saying that you know, that therefore, if you're praying for something that is actually enjoyable, you know, I, I, if you're praying for someone to get converted, that's a legitimate prayer. Uh, you know, but if you're praying, you know, oh Lord, 
you know, sort of like, bless me with a wife. Oh, no, that's for you. You can't expect that. That's not what James is saying. Because, of course, the point is, in Romans, Paul says that God, having given us his own son, will he not freely give us all things? I mean, God isn't tight. Not in the slightest. But what James is saying here is that the thing is that you can ask for something that is entirely selfish. You see, that's the point. It is entirely selfish. You can pray for a wife in such a way that part of that prayer is a blessing for whoever she's going to be and for other people once you are married. But there's a, another way that you can pray and it's a gimme, gimme, gimme. And it, it's a totally selfish thing. And, and, and in a situation like that, if, if, if God gave, it could end up being grabbed so tightly that she, she'd run a mile anyway. You can see what I mean? That's the sort of thing that James is getting at. Sort of hang loose a bit on these things that you want. Leave it in God's hands. So pray, but, but you know, none of this, well, you know, if I don't get it or until I get it, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I don't see how I can follow the Lord without this. You see, entirely, totally wrong. All it does is get you out of fellowship, all right? So then, he deals with that. Now, we move on in verse 4 to, to, to this kind of, um, I think I've been using the phrase, the general kicking, haven't I? Well, I suppose that's what it is. You judge. Uh, verse 4, he, he, he says, Unfaithful creatures... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there's uh, some further kicking in a few verses time, but we'll just deal with this at the moment. And, uh, you know, so, so sort of like, you know, heads on the floor, lads, so God can stamp on it. Um, unfaithful creatures. He, he, he's writing here to Christians. And he says, unfaithful creatures. Now, the Greek word that's translated here, unfaithful creatures, is moikalis, all right? And it's the word for adulteress. That's the word he uses. He says, you are adulteresses. He's talking about the betrayal of marriage vows. And of course, God hates the betrayal of marriage vows. Now then, so the point is that James knew full well, because of course it's in the feminine, adulteress. James knew full well, obviously, as a Jew, that in the Old Testament you had the picture of, of, of Israel having God as her husband. So, so the Israelites were like, you know, the bride, as it were, and God was the husband. And, um, and, and, and very often, the Old Testament prophets, when Israel got out of fellowship with God, the message that would come through was that, that them being out of fellowship with him would be termed as spiritual adultery, because they go after other gods. I mean, they were married to, to, to the Lord God of Israel, then they'd end up worshipping the Baals. Now, the picture is, that's the equivalent of being married and then going and sleeping with somebody else. And so, spiritual adultery was, was a picture that Israel was, was, was very aware of. And in the New Testament, the church is pictured. Now, this is all believers corporately. This idea that any individual believer <coughs> is married to Jesus is, is, in fact, to misunderstand what the Bible says. I mean, no individual is married to Jesus. Jesus isn't married to an individual, not in that way. But the church corporately, 
i.e. every believer, past, present and future, all right, the church corporately is one day going to be married to Jesus and is pictured as the bride with Jesus being the groom. And so there you've got, again, the church being pictured as feminine, all right, Jesus the masculine and the church the feminine. And, and of course, James gathers this all together and, and, and he throws it out at Christians who were individually behaving in this way who were committing spiritual adultery. That is what he terms it as. To be out of fellowship in this kind of way. And what you've got to realise is that here, they're not putting it right, because if they were, this letter wouldn't need to have been written. You see, the point is, none of these people are putting it right. They're, they're carrying on as if this is the normal way. And so, James is writing to them, he's saying, look, you are spiritual adulteresses. It, it's as simple as that. He says, you are betraying your spiritual union with Jesus. You are betraying in every way your oneness with Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit has made you one spirit with Jesus. And he says, you are betraying it. It's like adultery. He says, you are spurning your vows to Jesus. Now, hold on, I hear you say, vows? What vows? Haven't made any vows, we're not monks, are we? We don't have vows, do we, in the New Covenant? Well, think of it like this. When we were born again, we surrendered ourselves to Jesus, didn't we? We said, Lord, here, take my life. That, that famous hymn, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Well, that's a vow, isn't it? And how, how dare we break it with this sort of thing? With blatant, flagrant, ongoing, out of fellowship with God. We're not here dealing with, like, the sin that we commit and then, oh Lord, I'm sorry, and get it confessed. This is blatant sin. This is ongoing, out of fellowship with God of the most awful kind. And, uh, you know, sort of, and, and uh, I, I mean, it, it's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, the marriage picture as well is wives submitting to husbands. And the whole point is we're supposed to be in submission to Jesus. He is our authority. So, I mean, I mean, how dare Christians go against that authority of Jesus in their lives? And, uh, and he goes on to say here that friendship with the world, because all this is the worldliness. We saw that in an earlier study, you know, like, you know, defining various ways in which we can understand worldliness from a scriptural point of view. And, um, you know, and he says here, look, friendship with the world, this kind of worldliness, friendship with the world, is enmity with God. And enmity means to be at war with, you know, it means to have hatred against, it means to be set against in a, a completely antagonistic way. And so, what can we boil worldliness down to in this context? Well, it boils down simply to this, it's what I want as opposed to what God wants. Here, we've simply got a definition of worldliness that, that, that basically boils down to me, me, me. And that's ultimately what worldliness is. It, it's, it's me, it's self, it's the sinful nature. I mean, it's like in some, you know, in some sort of like, you know, religious sections of the church, they do the, the old cross, don't they? You know, from the forehead down to the stomach and then 
you know, like from the left breast to the right breast, you see. And as, you know, someone said once, this was quite good, they said it's an eye, all right, so from the, you know, the forehead to the stomach paints an eye, and then you cross it out. And, and of course that is what the cross is all about. The eye, and you cross it out. Because Jesus died on the cross for the benefit of others. Sacrifice of himself. And Jesus has said to us, look, to be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. And to take up your cross, what does it mean? To die, to die to self, to die to sin. And so here, James is saying, look, all this, this strife, this contention, this obsession with what I want, my pleasures, be they okay ones, you know, you know, ones that are fine, or the ones that are sinful, this whole obsession with what I want, James says, no, it boils down to friendship with the world, which equals enmity with God. It makes you an enemy of God. Now, back in chapter 2 and verse 23, uh, James referred to Abraham in the Old Testament and he just notes the fact that Abraham was called the friend of God. The friend of God. Now that's what a disciple should be, a friend of God. Whereas here, in chapter 4, he's writing to Christians and saying, but unlike Abraham, who, you know, the Bible calls a friend of God, Unlike him, he's saying you are friends of the world. Christians, but not friends of God like Abraham, but friends of the world. And the two are completely opposite. And the thing about the letter of James is that it is written to born again, tongues speaking, baptised in the Spirit, friends of the world. That's who this letter is written to. It was written to born-again, tongue-speaking, Spirit-baptised enemies of God. What a thought! But that is what James is saying. And uh, when he talks here about, you know, friendship with the world, the actual you know, word here for friendship is philia, and it means a relationship of love, i.e. that that old way of sin and the sinful nature, that, that these people, they still love it. I mean, Jesus talked about, you know, you've got to hate your life in this world. Not meaning hating yourself, but, but hating our sinful natures, hating our sinfulness. And yet the point is, these Christians, they still love it. They love it, they're never happier than when they're having a fight with somebody. Never happier than when they're stitching someone up. And he says, look, you know, this is absolutely wrong. Now, bearing that in mind, go to John, 1 John. We've, we've, we've done this at other times, because there, there are real parallels between the letter of James and, and the first letter of John. So, so 1 John, chapter 1, bearing in mind, you know, that what James is saying about, look, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And this word friendship in the Greek, it's one of the Greek words for love, so loving the world. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. So that's the danger, isn't it? If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now let's just break that down. John's saying that loving the world boils down to three things. Worldliness boils down to three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what's the lust of the flesh? The lust of the flesh is putting your pleasure at any one moment before the Lord. That's what the lust of the flesh is. We've already seen this, haven't we? Hedonism. All right. Now, again, whether that desire is legitimate or sinful. Can you see? Because the point is, obviously, if you're wanting to be immoral or if you're wanting to, you know, oh, well, I mean, I'd love, I'd, you know, I'd love one of the new Mercs, so I'll go out on Saturday night and nick one. All right. You know, now that's a wrong pleasure, okay? Or be it a pleasure that is legitimate in itself. The point is, I mean, an example of that would be when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Satan came along and said, well, if you're the son of God, turn that bread into, sorry, turn the stone into bread. Now, the point is that he was trying to tempt Jesus with the lust of the flesh. Nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry. And nothing wrong with God himself in the flesh turning stone into bread so he can eat it. Nothing wrong with that at all. But the point is, it was the time when Jesus' father wanted him to be going hungry. He was meant to be fasting. Can you see? A legitimate desire, I'm hungry, I want to eat. But his father said, no, not at the moment. So that was, you know, and of course Jesus didn't. But that was a temptation to the lust of the flesh. So, the lust of the flesh, worldliness, is aspect number one. It's putting your immediate pleasures, be they legitimate or sinful, putting pleasure at any one moment before the Lord. That's the first aspect of worldliness. And obviously that covers a million things, doesn't it? Now, secondly, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is putting what you want but don't have before the Lord. I mean, this is the coveting in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? This is the coveting in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And, you know, remembering Romans, Paul, Paul was saying, uh, you know, that his, his experience of the law in bringing him to become a Christian was that in the Ten Commandments, you've got kind of, you know, you've got the ones that are purely to do with, you know, loving God and worshipping him. Well, I mean, Paul could turn a blind eye to that because, you, you know, it's easy to say that, oh, I love God with all my heart, blah, blah, blah. Then you've got the commandments that are kind of, well, okay, let's see it in action, like don't commit adultery and don't steal, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, Paul could stay away from all them. I mean, it's not too difficult, is it, to get by without actually being immoral and without actually stealing. But what Paul said in Romans, he says, the trouble was it was that flipping thou shalt not covet. That's what did me in. Because it's internal. It's internal. Paul couldn't get away from that. His covetous heart betrayed him as being a sinner, even though as a Pharisee he was convinced he was righteous. And so the point is, with the lust of the eyes, we have, and again, what you're lusting after with your eyes, it might be legitimate, it might be sinful, but the point is, it's discontent, it's envy, it's, it's jealousy, it's 
dissatisfaction with your lot. It's being prepared to sin in order to get what you want at any one time. And it's kind of wanting to better yourself in the wrong way. Now, I mean, there's, there's a right way. You know, I mean, obviously, if you, if you get a chance for promotion at work, I mean, that, that could be a very good thing. You know, if the Lord wants you to have it, that's great. But this is kind of, it's the feeling that I deserve more. I'm better than this. That's the point. You know, it's that coveting things. And then, you know, the pride of life boils down, you know, this is the big me, the big cheese. The pride of life is, you know, look at me. I mean, I'm great. Or listen to my opinions. Because my opinion is, is, is the one that everyone's going to leave this room tonight having heard at the very last minute. You see, it's this kind of thing. It's the I, 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 me, me, me. And, and that's really what worldliness boils down to. It is self as opposed to the Lord. And it's a straight choice that we have to make as disciples. Is it going to be me or is it going to be the Lord? And, uh, you know, the people that James is writing to were definitely making the wrong decision. Now then, let's move on to verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit which he has made us to dwell in us? Now then, some of you, if you've got the NIV, have got an alternative translation. So, I mean, the Bible commentators, they're not fully sure this verse could mean one of two things. All right, so what I'll do is I'll cover both. The, the translation that the RSV that I'm using tonight favours is the one that I've read out. And, and here James says, you know, is it in vain that the scripture says? Now, you've got to understand, whatever this is, he's not here quoting a scripture. So, so this thing, when he says, do you suppose that the scripture says in vain, don't get a concordance out and try and find it, because it's not there. Because he's not actually quoting a scripture. I mean, it's like, you know, you know sort of say, take Billy Graham, his catchphrase when he's preaching. His catchphrase is, the Bible says. Now, that is Billy Graham's catchphrase. And, and, and uh, you know, when he's preaching, uh, you know, about th 327 times an hour, he says, the Bible says. But what he then goes on to say the Bible says, he's not quoting a verse, he's summing up what the Bible says. Alright, so here, what James is saying, he's simply summing up the general teaching of the Bible. Now then, version number one, mine, is that he's summing up that the Bible says that, that, that God yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, if that's the right translation, as it may well be, I don't know, if that's the right translation, then what he's highlighting is that, that, that he, he's dealing here with, with spiritual adultery, okay? And yet he's dealing also with the fact that God is jealous of us. And in the Bible, God says, I am a jealous God. It's the language of lovers, and it's the point. You know, that prophecy from Dave tonight, the Lord's saying, I, I love you so much, you know, wider than, than the sea is, high, higher than the skies. That is my love for you. And when we as Christians get out of fellowship, God is jealous. Do you know what? Because we're ignoring him. We are not showing him the love that he longs to have from us. So, you know, here you've got the picture of God being our lover, which he is, you know, to that extent. And that if he sees us wandering up, you know, off after other loves that come before him, he's jealous. You know, and, and he's just yearning for us to, to come back to him. 
And, uh, you know, so, so if, if my Bible has got this verse right, that's, that's what it means. Now, if the NIV translation is correct, could, could someone just read out that, that verse in the NIV? Anyone? NIV, it's, it's verse 5. That's, that's verse 6. Right, okay, now that's the other scripture, which talks there, not in terms of God being jealous of the spirit he's given us, but our spirit being an envious one. Now, if that's the right translation, then in this verse, what James is highlighting is that the sinful nature is by definition covetous, because that's what he's just been dealing with, isn't it? And that that is basic, it's basic to our makeup as sinners, covetous. We always want more than God has apportioned to us. It's not a question of like wanting more, but leaving it in the Lord's hands and in his time if it's his will. But we're dealing here with covetousness that will go out and get. You see what I mean? And get out of fellowship in the process. So the point is there, it's just that in the Greek, they're not sure you know, which, which translation it is. Either translation actually fits perfectly, which is why it's so difficult for them to decide which, you know, which one is right, because both translations do fit. Anyway, you know, sort of like that's that cover. But, but, but let's, let's move on now to verse 6. And, uh, and he says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this... This, this kicking isn't over yet. We, we, we've had the first couple of rounds, but there's more to come. But the important thing is that here, right in the middle, what does James put there? The grace of God. And it's vitally important, because this chapter, with, or, or, or verses 1 to 10, without verse 6, would be pretty awful. You'd be straight back under law, wouldn't you? But of course, we're not under law, we're under grace. And so here, dealing with sin, all right, right in the middle, it's grace. And it's vitally important, because the thing is, because of God's grace, the undeserved kindness that he's got, it doesn't matter how deeply we are ever into sin, if we confess it, if we put it right, it's forgiven. And that is vitally important. Because there can be times when, whether it's through the Bible or whatever, um, I've ex experienced this many, 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 many times, when, you know, sort of like you're, you're, you're carrying on following the Lord, all right? And then suddenly, you know, sort of like, I mean, sometimes God puts things there about you for you to walk right into, doesn't he? You know, so you can't miss them. And you, you, you realise yet more of how evil your heart is, how sinful we actually are. And the point is that if it, if it wasn't for God's grace, I mean, it would just, just be suicide time, wouldn't it? Because there would just not be a glimmer of light anywhere. But of course, the point is that no matter how terrible a thing God may show us about ourselves, if we confess it, he forgives it, no problem. So God's grace is here. But there's something else about God's grace. I mean, it's there for forgiveness, obviously. But look, but he gives more grace, all right? So here he's talking about, you know, look, you know the more, 
the more you've sinned, then the more grace God will pile on you. And I refer you back to, to the Law and Grace series that we did. But then he goes on to say, look, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And, and, and he's saying that God's grace is such that he will actually fight against us in our sin. That is God's grace. He loves us. He's so kind that he will actually fight against us when we're in sin, i.e. he will oppose us if we're proud. And the reason that he opposes us when we're proud is because to receive grace you've got to be humbled because grace is a free gift and proud people don't get on very well with free gifts, do they? It's an insult to them. So therefore, we're proudly going on in sin. Well, God loves us enough to resist us, to fight against us. You know the old Jacob thing at Peniel, that wrestling match he had with the Lord? God loves us enough to do that, to humble us so then we can receive this grace that he just wants to, to you know, to, to pour on us. Um, you know, and, and here's a question in our Christian life. Do we want the Lord to fight for us or do we want the Lord to fight against us? Ultimately, he's saying, look, it's ultimately no skin off my nose what, what I do. I mean, I guess he, you know, he says, I'd rather fight for you than against you, but if you want to be rebellious, well, fine, I'll fight against you. Uh, I mean, go to Galatians. Go to Galatians. And uh, find chapter 5, and uh, a verse here that, that, that really does sum up a, a very important aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And of course, you know, so many Christians, you, you talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they think about tongues and healing and prophecy. Well, yes, that's all part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but it's rather peripheral compared to this aspect of his ministry. And in Galatians 5 and verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is Paul doing prevention rather than cure. James is doing cure because they were already gratifying the desires of the flesh, weren't they? Paul is working on prevention because prevention is already, you know, always more effective than cure. So Paul says, don't do it, don't do it. Because if you do, you'll get a letter from James. You know, that, that's, the, that's the sort of thing, <laughs> you see. So he says, look, don't gratify the desires of the flesh or James will write to you. Uh, James, one of the, the heavies, you know. Um, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. So there you've got the Spirit opposing you. The Holy Spirit will fight against us in our sin. See? So, get out of fellowship and you've got to fight on your hands with the Lord. It's as, as, as simple as that. And, and the choice is, is, is very much for us to make. And uh, here, the people that James was writing to, I mean, they had just utterly forgotten. I mean, they were so taken up in, in, in their worldliness that they, they'd forgotten any of this. And so James really has to, to hammer it, it, it home in regards to them. And then in verse 7, he, he goes on to say, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And James, he's showing them the way out now. He said, look, you're committing spiritual adultery. 
But it's not, and then he talks about grace. So it's not hopeless. He's, he's not, you know, saying, oh, this is, you know, it's never too bad to get right with God. Because that's the nature of grace over sin. Where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. Old King James Version there. Um, and, and so he's pinpointed, he said, this is the truth about you. And we really are, or James really here is, is really giving the lie to, to this ridiculous uh, thing that so many Christians go on about. You know, the fact that, 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 that love doesn't include correction. You know, sort of like, you know, nothing... You know, I mean, say, say these kind of things to people, and by definition, you're going to get told by 90% of Christians that you're being unloving. Well, was James being unloving? It's tough, but, but sin is. So, anyway, he's told them the truth about themselves. However tough it is, you're adulteresses. That's what he said. But he says, God's grace is there. No problem. God's grace can cover this mess. And here is the actual way out, all right? And so he says, look, submit yourselves to God. He says, submit, give up the fight. Give up the fight. Remember the picture? He's called them adulteresses, the picture of the unfaithful wife. What does Paul say about wives? Wives, submit to your husbands. And he's saying here, submit to God. End your adultery, end your fight with God. Because ultimately their fight wasn't with each other. I mean it was, but ultimately, as King David, when he sinned against Bathsheba, he said, against thee only have I sinned. Now he had sinned against others. But, but ultimately the fight is with God. And, uh, you know, and... And this word submit here, hupotasso, it means to rank under. It's a military term. It means to take your place as the rank and file and do what the sergeant or the general says. That, that's what it is. And Jesus is the captain um, of, 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 of the army of, of, your, of, um, of the church. And, uh, you know, so, so James is saying, look, get back in line now. He says, you're out of order, but get back in line now. If you do then the whole situation can be put right. And he says then, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, it's important here, I mean, it's very easy, and many Christians do it, they really like, you know, th this verse, like, resist the devil and he will flee far from you. Because when you get into sin like this, I mean, Satan's wiping the floor with everyone in sight, isn't he? I mean, we've, we've, we've seen a bit of this at various points in our history, haven't we? And we've seen when Christians go like this. And, and, and Satan just ends up wiping the floor with everyone. Uh, but the point is that, 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 that with Satan, it's all very well saying, well, resist the devil and he'll flee. But that's, that's not all of it. What comes first in spiritual warfare is submission to God. And it's very easy to want to, oh, well, I'm a, you know, in spiritual warfare, this is brilliant, I'm going to resist the devil and he'll flee far from me. No, he won't. He'll only flee far from you if you resist him, if you're submitting to God. Submitting to God comes first. You see, our authority over Satan is delegated. We don't have it in our own right. It's delegated. And what that means is, we only have authority over Satan to the extent that we are under the authority of the Lord. So he's saying, look, with a mess like this, you've got to submit to God, 
all right? You've got to start repenting, getting all this put right, then you can get rid of Satan. Because once you've submitted to God again, you're under submission to him, therefore Satan will experientially be back under your feet and you can kick him out. Because this is an absolute scandal, what Satan is being able to do amongst Christians here because of your sin. And, um, and so in verse 8 he goes on to say, and, and this is important because he's, he's told them that they've got to repent. And these verses that follow are vitally important. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, this, this now is the next phase, isn't it? In the, they've been out of fellowship with God, so now they've got to draw near. And God will draw near to them. It was them who moved away from God. It wasn't God who distanced himself from them. And he said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Now then, I mean, how do you get near to God? When sin and being out of fellowship has taken you right away from him, how is it that you then, coming out from the terrible mess that these believers are in, how do you then draw near to God? And he puts it here in very, very strong terms. It's through repentance. It is through coming clean. It is always through identifying ourselves and our sin that we need to repent of for what it is. Without excusing it, without minimising it, and definitely without in any way at all trying to excuse it. And not being double-minded about it. Being absolutely definite. Absolutely definite. Are you going to be a disciple or not? It's not wishy-washy. But, but, but this kind of cleanse your hands, you sinners. You see, 90% of Christians would say that this is really unloving stuff. I mean, they wouldn't say this is, because you can't say that about a letter in the Bible, can you? But if, 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 if something like this was said in the context of a church to people, they, oh, you, 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 you know, you'd have uproar. People say, oh, this, this isn't loving. But here, because James... He's dealing with, a, these people have got to come clean. This is a terrible mess that's going on, and it needs to, to be handled in a very definite and authoritative way. And so he says, you sinners, he says, purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Are you disciples or not? Make your mind up, this cannot go on. And then in verse 9, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Now then, where's, where's the joy of the Lord is my strength in those verses? Goodness, heavy stuff. Is this how we're supposed to go around all the time? Well, again, got to see it in context. We've seen what these people have been up to, destroying each other, every kind of evil and malice. And he's showing them how they can be restored and everything can be put right if they come clean, if they repent. But what he's now saying in verse 9, this be wretched, mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. What he's saying is, but when you do repent, could we please have a little bit of godly sorrow? You see what he's saying? He's saying, in the light of what you're all going to have to be repenting of, he says, can it be with a little bit of godly sorrow, please? Now, you don't see a lot of godly sorrow around today. 
amongst Christians. It's not, it's not, it's not in fashion today. It's, it's all very happy, happy, happy today, isn't it? But I'll tell you, you can't, you can't, you can't feel the filth of your sin with a smile on your face. You can't do it. Deep conviction of sin will always mean this. And in the light, now, I mean, the point is important to you know, day, day to day, if we sin, we confess our sin. I mean, f feelings of sorrow on a day-to-day -day level, you know, sort of like, it, 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 it's an act of the will, not feelings. But what James is saying, in the light of what they've been doing, this is the point. For heaven's sake, what you've been doing to each other, could there be a little bit of godly sorrow, please? And what it, it boils down to, it's not a, a, a kind of, it's not talking about constantly bemoaning our sin and being negative people, anything like that. It's not Christian depressives getting together to see who's worse. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. It's a case here that what James is saying of, there's the, that saying of let the punishment fit the crime, isn't there, from that, um, what is it, the operetta, those comic operettas? The Mikado, that's right. Let the punishment fit the crime. Now here, what James is saying, could the repentance fit the sin? You see what I mean? You've been destroying each other. You've, you've been slating each other. You, you, you've been full of hatred for each other. You've, you've created an utter scandal in the body of Christ. So therefore, could we have a little bit of godly sorrow? And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, as I say, not a quick light-hearted old sorry with, with hardly an ounce of sincerity in it. James says, no, that, that's no good in a situation like that. And then in verse 10 he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And I mean, when you do, that restoration comes swiftly. Humble yourself. God will give you grace. He gives grace to the humble. And he will immediately exalt you. Restoration comes swiftly. There's no question of a constant bemoaning of how awful we are at all times. It's not that at all. But what it boils down to is quite simply this. When we're out of fellowship in undealt with sin, then there shouldn't be laughter and jollity, you know, as if we're right with the Lord and right with other people. I mean, laughter and jollity and fun, the more of it, the better, when you're right with God. But there shouldn't be laughter and having fun. And part of the great tragedy, I've, I've, you can, I, I've seen believers thoroughly enjoy the knife job they're doing behind other people's back. I've seen them enjoy it. And that, that is so tragic. And I mean, the point is that, 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 that if we're out of fellowship, for whatever reason, as, as I say, laughter and jollity, as if it's a, a light thing to be out of fellowship. It's not a light thing to be out of fellowship. And it should be a realisation of our wretchedness before God. And a mourning, I mean, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, didn't he? That mourning for our sinfulness. And, and there are times for, for tears of repentance. There's a time for that. I'm not saying that if you've never cried before the Lord, you're not right with him, but, but can you see the point? There are just times when we need to, to realise our, our sin in it, its whole 
horror, and, and especially in the light of what these people had been up to. But the point is that when you do that and you're restored, yeah, then the joy, then the relief, then the laughter, that all comes. This isn't anti-laughter, this isn't anti-joy. But it's saying, for heaven's sake, let the repentance at least fit the sin, so that when God restores you, and you are laughing and jolly again, he said, let that least, at least stand in contrast, so that you're not too laughing and jolly before you repent. You know, because sin is a serious thing. And remember that James is not here addressing what you would call a believer in ongoing fellowship day to day. Now, obviously, when you're in ongoing fellowship day to day, we sin daily and we have to put that right. James is not dealing with that aspect. He's dealing here with believers who, who are so out of fellowship, it's, 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 it's hard to credit. So you've got to get the, these verses in context. And, uh, but nevertheless, even though we might not fit, you know, sort of the cap of these believers might not fit us, we might not be totally out of fellowship, we might not be going around stitching each other, you know, you know i.e. things might not be the same in our lives as they were in the lives of the people he was writing to. But nevertheless, the point remains the same. The point remains the same. There is a solemnity about our sin. There is a solemnity about repentance. Now, repentance leads to peace and joy and laughter. Of course it does. But the peace and joy and laughter shouldn't be there when we're out of fellowship. That's the main point. We do need to, to, to un understand a bit about the seriousness of our sin before the Lord, but without ever for one moment forgetting the grace that is just oozing all over it the moment that we bring it before him. So, I would say an anointed kicking there that, that, that doesn't necessarily relate directly to us as a church at the moment. We've had our moments as a church when it would have done, haven't we? Not at the moment. But nevertheless, there, there's, there's definitely more than a few thrusts in there that we can all receive. You know, e e even if it's just a little one to the ribs rather than a steel toe cap, perhaps, to the, the face. But there's a lot in there, and uh, you know, we need to take that on board. So, um, the, kind of, the kind of thing that many Christians will say, oh, how unloving, this can't be of the Lord, what you've just said. But, but James said, <laughs> you know, so, you know, tell him he's unloving. But, but yeah, it, it's sin is serious, sin is serious. Grace is brilliant. Grace is brilliant, but sin is nevertheless serious. It's what Jesus died to save us from. So, a kicking, but a, a nice anointed one there. And uh, so we'll, 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 we'll leave that and we'll, um, we'll carry on next time. We all need a bit of a kicking like that from time to time. You know, a, a kind of, for the Holy Spirit to give us a, a workout. Now, sometimes you have to go to the doctor and get a physical, a complete workout, to find out how you are. And there's times with conviction of sin that, that every now and then we just need the Holy Spirit to give us the old once over. So, we'll, we'll carry on next time.